0: Last week, I watched the movie Avatar. Uh, How many people have seen it? Oh, yeah, we're moviegoers here. I thought it was great, and I reckon um, part of the reason that I enjoyed it so much was that my expectations were so low. I remember it came out last year at the movies, and I never got around to seeing it, and I read a couple of bad reviews that said it was way overrated. And then in May, it came out on DVD and didn't bother getting it. And then last week I was at Blockbuster, and there it was for $2 for the week, and I thought, why not? $2, it can't be too bad. And I loved it. It was, it was brilliant. Perhaps because my expectations were so low. I can remember, on the other hand, really good movies that I've seen, but because so many people told me how good they were, and my expectations were so high, that it was actually disappointing. Our expectations of something can totally change our experience of it, can't they? Maybe that's the case for you. Maybe you've had something that didn't live up to expectations. Maybe a holiday that you were looking forward to, but then it was disappointing. Maybe a change in life, a new job or retirement or finishing school, but it wasn't as good as you thought it was going to be. Maybe you've had things in life that went way beyond your expectations. You weren't expecting it to be good, but it was. A special event or a celebration or a a time with family and friends that was beyond expectations. Well, today we're jumping back into Mark's gospel after a few months off. We're up to chapter 11 of Mark's gospel. As you remember, we've been following the events of Jesus' life. And in this particular point in Jesus' life, expectations are very high. In fact, you could almost think, Could Jesus possibly live up to these expectations? You might remember in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been healing people. He's been doing miracles and the crowds have been growing and growing and there's a kind of fervor to it all. Expectations reach a peak in Mark's gospel here in chapter 11 as Jesus hops on a donkey and rides into Jerusalem. Let's pick it up at chapter 11. Uh, We'll start down in verse 7. Now, that all might seem a bit strange to us. Um, hopping on a donkey, palm branches, maybe it reminds you of Palm Sunday, um, people shouting out Hosanna. Something exciting seems to be going on, though. But if you know your Old Testament, it's really clear what is going on. What's happening here is it's Jesus is not just some miracle worker. Jesus is not just some prophet. Jesus is actually the Messiah, now, Messiah is a word from the Old Testament, and let's explore it a little bit. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament covers a period of about 1,500 years, and over that entire time period, God slowly revealed more and more about himself and his plan for the world. And if you've ever kind of looked at the Old Testament as a whole, what, what is clear in it that there is a problem with people, right from Genesis 3 in the garden, but that problem is just revealed more and more. No matter what religious structure they seem to be under, no matter what political structure they seem to be under, God's people always get messed up. In the Old Testament, uh, after Moses rescues them, they mess up. In the time of the judges, they mess up. Even under the kings, like the great King David and King Solomon, they mess up. Even their kings mess up. The Old Testament, I think you could almost summarize as a book of mess-ups when it comes to people, anyway, humanly speaking. But from God's side, the Old Testament is a book of promises. From God's side, God is trying to get people to look forward to a day when he will send someone to fix things up. In the Old Testament, that person is called the Messiah, the Christ. Handles Messiah, that's where that word comes from. Messiah and Christ is actually the same word. And I want to briefly look at some of those promises from the Old Testament about God's Messiah. But as we do, just keep in your mind what is happening in Mark chapter 11. So one of the first promises about the Messiah in the Old Testament comes from Genesis 49.10. You might want to jot that down and look it up later. Genesis, way back in the book of Genesis 49, in verse 10, there's this promise. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, Judah is a tribe and the scepter is like the staff that the king has. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. So from way back in Genesis, from that point on, people are waiting for a ruler to come from the tribe of Judah who will rule all the nations. Now, leaders come and leaders go, but that particular promised leader does not come. Moses comes, but he's not the one, because Moses dies. And in Exodus 18, God promises that he'll raise up someone after Moses another prophet greater than Moses. And then after Moses comes Joshua. And you remember, he, he leads God's people into the promised land, but he's not the one. Joshua dies. And after Joshua comes the book of Judges and we've got these great rescuers like Samson and Gideon. But they're not the ones. They all mess up and they all die. And then comes the most promising candidate, the great King David. He's a great king. He's from the tribe of Judah like Genesis 49 promised. Perhaps he's the one. But listen to what God says even to King David. In 2 Samuel 7... Jot this down, you might want to look it up later. It's a great passage, it's the one that was read earlier. 2 Samuel 7. God promises to King David, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, a temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So after the great king David, the promise still goes on. We're waiting for an even greater king. And after King David comes King Solomon. And he, if you like, is has is the king with the greatest influence in the Old Testament, a great king. Wrote the Proverbs, wrote the Song of Songs. But he's not the Messiah. He does build a temple, but his temple gets destroyed and his life is a mess, and so Israel are still waiting. And as the Bible goes on towards the end, God makes even more promises. They get even bigger and Israel is still waiting. Zechariah 9.9 is one of those great promises that helps them see who this Messiah will be. In Zechariah nine 9.9, jot that down. You might want to look it up later. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. See, these promises of the Messiah just keep growing and growing and expectations get bigger and bigger. Now, not only will he be king, not only will he rule the nations, but he will bring salvation and he will bring peace to the nations. I mean, as you read on, there's even really peculiar promises about the Messiah. For example, Zechariah 14.4, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. There's more promises like that in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And even the prophets who wrote them down didn't know exactly who they were looking forward to or when he would come or who it would be. And so, skip forward to Mark 11. Israel is still waiting. With very high expectations. And what's happening in Mark 11, obviously, is that Jesus, The people think that Jesus is the promised king. The Messiah. He's riding a cult, like in Zechariah 9. They're putting down the... Um, cut the coats on the road it's like the red carpet rolling it out for the great king they're singing hosanna which means save us rescue us they think jesus is the one that's going to save them they're singing in verse 10 of mark 11 blessed is the coming kingdom of our father david they think that jesus is the one promised in 2 samuel 7 So they're throwing their coats on the ground. They're giving him a great welcome. They're expecting that Jesus will take his place on the throne. The temple will become the center of the world. It's action time. Expectations are very high. Well, let's read on and see what happens. Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple, the center of it all. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. It's kind of an anti-climax, isn't it? After all that build-up, after all that great expectation, Jesus simply turns around and goes home. This would be like the New Zealand rugby team coming onto the field for the finals. Everyone's cheering them. They sing their national anthem. They do the haka. The whistle blows, and then they just all walk off again. What is going on? Well, can I suggest... The reason Jesus goes home is actually that it's too late. Notice what it says there. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. In other words, whatever it is that Jesus is going to do, it's going to be so big that he needs to start it in the morning. This is not kind of last thing in the day stuff. So he goes home and the next morning they wake up and I reckon expectations would have even been bigger. And on the way into Jerusalem again, Jesus sees a fig tree, verse 12. It has no figs. He curses it, and then he heads into Jerusalem. A very strange detail for Mark to describe, isn't it? Like, who cares about figs? Who cares what Jesus has for breakfast? Let's get on with the action. Well, we actually come back to the fig tree again later, so it must be important, but let's just hold it and look at what what happens in Jerusalem. So day two, let's pick it up at verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now, I don't know what exactly people were expecting Jesus to do but I doubt that this was one of them. I doubt that he was, they were thinking he was going to just come into the temple and rip everything to bits. It's a very violent response. Can you imagine? He's just ripping up the tables, money's going everywhere, the cages with doves squawking and people getting driven out of the temple by Jesus. I reckon this is as provocative as that pastor in America a few weeks ago saying that he was going to burn the Koran on the muslim holiday can you remember the outrage that 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 sparked jesus walks right into the middle of the temple the holiest place in jerusalem and he doesn't just send people home he turns the tables upside down he creates an uproar can you imagine the noise people grabbing for money people getting angry and yelling what is jesus doing why is he doing this what has upset him so much is the problem that they're selling things in the temple? That it should be a place of prayer, but they're selling things. Um, perhaps this is a lesson that we shouldn't have bookstores in church, for example. Or is it the, is, is it the way they're selling things? Is, it, the, is it, the, it that they're ripping people off, that they're charging too much for the doves? Or is it that the, the doves aren't kosher, that they're not using perfect doves? What's the problem? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us guess, guessing. He tells us. Look at verse 17 after he'd done it all. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now that verse, you have made it a den of robbers, is actually giving us a hint that the problem is not so much what they're doing inside the temple, but what they're doing outside the temple. Let me explain. If you look at the bottom of your Bible there, you might notice that there's a little note showing you that that verse is actually a quote from Isaiah 56. My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And the next verse, you have made it a den of robbers, is from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. See down the bottom of your Bible, it gives you those little links to look up. So you might want to go and look them up later at home. Let's go back for now and just look up one of them, Jeremiah. So turn your Bibles back to Jeremiah Kind of go Psalms, which is an easy one to find because it's so big. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah. So just flip back there to Jeremiah and let's, let's look up Jeremiah 7. This is the part of the Bible that Jesus is quoting straight after he's ripped the insides of the temple to bits and turned over the money tables. Jesus knows what he was talking about here because as we go and look up Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 7, the entire chapter is about the temple. Let's pick it up from verse 4. God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, If you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave to your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you've not known. And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Now go to the place in Silo where I first made a dwelling for my name. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Now, do you see what is happening back in Jeremiah's day? The problem is not so much with the temple itself. The problem is what is in their hearts. The problem is that they don't love God and they don't love each other. And they think they can just do whatever they want with their lives. And then they can come into the temple and offer their sacrifices and say, we have the temple. We have the temple. God is on our side. We're okay. They're treating God like a lucky charm. And God said back in Jeremiah's day, if you don't change your ways, I'll destroy the temple. And he did. That's exactly what happened. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar came and the temple was destroyed. Now let's come back to Mark's gospel in Jesus' day. There's a new temple that has been built since Solomon's one's been destroyed. And Jesus is saying that they are treating the new temple exactly the same way they treated the old one. They don't love God. They don't love each other, but they think they're going to be okay because they've got the temple. Well, God's going to take it away again. And that's what the whole fig tree thing is about that comes before and after Jesus' clearing of the temple. Back in verse 13, Jesus sees a fig tree that has no figs. And so Jesus curses it. And it's not just that Jesus is angry because there's not enough food for breakfast. That's what the nation of Israel is like. They're like the fig tree, not bearing fruit. And that's why the next day in verse 20 on day 3, Jesus comes back and the fig tree that has been cursed is dead. That is a sign of what is going to happen to the nation of Israel. They're fruitless. And so God is going to uproot them. Verse 20 of Mark 11. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. That verse there, um, I know it's the kind of verse that we see on posters and on the toilet door, believe whatever you um, ask for in your heart and it will be done for you that is not just a nice little verse about prayer the mountain that jesus is talking about is the mount of olives that's the mountain that he's standing on the mountain between bethany and jerusalem and back in the book of zechariah what was promised god talked about the day that the messiah would stand on the mount of olives and it would be flattened split in half that day would be a day when living water would flow out of jerusalem And God's Messiah would be made king over the whole earth. Look it up later, Zechariah 14.4, Zechariah 14.4. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm about to do. Pray for it to happen. But if you're going to pray that prayer, if you are going to pray for the coming of God's kingdom and for all these prophecies to come true, if you really do want the Messiah to come, then you better be ready you'd better be forgiven. You'd better ask God for forgiveness because the temple is no lucky charm. You're not going to be right just because you have the temple. So verse 25, Jesus says, and when you stand praying, asking for God's kingdom to come, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So there's only one way to be ready for the judgment of God. It's not having the temple. It's being forgiven for your sins. And I think that's what this morning's passage is all about. See, the people were expecting Jerusalem to be raised up and the temple to be raised up and Israel's enemies to be smashed. But Jesus says, that's not what's going to happen. Israel's going to be smashed. The temple is going to be destroyed. And Jesus is going to be glorified. And he's going to start something completely new. It turns out that Israel's expectations were not too high. They were too low. See, Jesus isn't just going to fix up the old temple. He's going to start something completely new, a way for people to be forgiven by God because it doesn't matter what king you put over people. It doesn't matter what temple they have. It doesn't matter what political structure they have. The problem is in our hearts and God's judgment is coming. And you'd better be ready. And the way to be ready for God's judgment is to have your sins dealt with. And that's why Jesus came. I mean, he rode into Jerusalem on a red uh, carpet in luxury with people cheering. But within a week, he will walk out of Jerusalem carrying his own cross to his death. Where he will die on the cross to take away sin. And so the way to be ready for God is not being religious. If you think that religion can keep you safe, you're wrong. Whatever your religion might be, even God's religion of the Old Testament, the temple, won't keep you safe. So if you're here this morning and you know that your life doesn't match up to what God wants from it, and let's be honest, none of our lives do. The lesson for us is that religion is not the answer. And by religion, I mean the kinds of things that good religious people do that they think will make them okay with God, the kind of things the Pharisees were doing in the New Testament. Like Israel, coming to the temple or coming to the church and thinking that you're okay just because you're in the right place and saying the right words. Coming to church is not a lucky charm to get you into heaven. Being baptised is not a lucky charm to get you into heaven. And I'd be sure that some of you here this morning even think that you are Christians because you do the right thing or because you were brought up in a Christian home or because you give money away to help people or because you think that you're a good person. None of those things makes you a Christian. Your parents can't make you a Christian. Your church minister can't make you a Christian. If your heart is not in the right spot, God hates all of that external stuff. It's just religion. It's up to you to do business with God. Ask him for forgiveness. In fact, I reckon some of those people in Jesus' day who were sitting there in the temple selling doves, they probably thought they were doing a good thing serving God even, providing sacrifices so that people could come and offer doves in the temple. And Jesus came in and he threw over their tables. We all like to think, don't we, that if Jesus came and visited our church, if Jesus happened to come to Dubbo, we hope he'd come to our church, and that we'd kind of all be his best friend. He'd be pleased with us. He'd kind of love what he saw here today at DPC. But I reckon if Jesus came here today... He would confront some people and say, your life is a sham. You come to church, you even say the right things, but you don't love other people and you don't love me. So in the light of Mark 11, I reckon it is a great day to examine your own heart before God and ask yourself, is it real? because God hates religion. God hates it when people think that they're okay with him because of what they do. He hates it when people look down on others who are less religious than they are and think that they're better than other people. It grieves his heart when people think that being right with him is about going to church or going to mass or doing the right things. Now, that might sound hard, But when Jesus marched into the temple and slammed the tables over, he was not mucking around. He was sending a very clear message. He wasn't worried about offending people. He wanted people to know how dangerous it is to be religious. A tough message, a tough passage, but not one without hope. Verse 25, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven May forgive you your sins. See, even though we can't be right with God through religion, there is another way the way of forgiveness. The way of forgiving other people and the way of being forgiven by God. And in fact, all through Mark's gospel, we have seen unreligious people, messed up people, warts and all, like the demon possessed man, Levi, the tax collector. Blind Bartimaeus, who everyone just kind of pushed to the outside. The most unreligious people. They weren't found in the temple, were they? They were found on the outskirts. But people who found God's forgiveness. If there's one thing you make sure of this morning, make sure that your sins are forgiven by God. Let's pray. Father God, as we read this part of Mark's gospel and Jesus is in the last week of his life and he knows that he's only got a few days left before he dies for sin. It seems that he just wants to make things really clear. So we pray that things would be clear for each person here this morning. Father, help us to realise that it's not the externals that matter before you, it's what's in our hearts. And we pray that each one of us here at early church might know the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. And Father, for those who haven't yet personally come to you and asked you to forgive them, we pray that this morning's passage and the words of Jesus might speak really clearly to them. Thank you that you're a God who loves to save people. And we pray that people might be really clear about their need to come to you for forgiveness. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.